Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. Or, if you're listening on the Apple Podcasts app, you can subscribe within the app in just a few clicks. Often in the theatre, in the full view of the people, Theodora would throw off her clothes and stand naked in their midst, having only a pair of knickers over her private parts and her groin, not because she was ashamed to expose these also to the public, but because no one is allowed to appear there absolutely naked. Underwear is compulsory. And with this costume, she would spread herself out and lie on her back on the floor. Certain menials on whom this task had been imposed would then sprinkle barley grains over her private parts, and geese trained for the purpose used to pick them off with their beaks one by one and swallow them. Theodora, far from blushing when she stood up again, actually seemed to be proud of this performance. For she was not only shameless herself, but did more than anyone else to encourage shamelessness. And many times she threw off her clothes and stood in the middle of the actors on the stage, leaning over backwards or pushing out her rear to invite both those who had already enjoyed her and those who had not been intimate as yet, parading her own special brand of gymnastics. With such lasciviousness did she misuse her own body that she appeared to have her privates, not like other women in the place intended by nature, but in her face. That, uh, Dominic, was a Procopius, a historian from Palestine in the 6th century, writing about uh, indisputably the most famous of all the empresses of Constantinople, Theodora. And it is one of the most notorious, scabrous, shocking passages in the whole of ancient literature. Um, yes, it is, Tom. Her own special brand of gymnastics. That's a phrase that uh, I think a lot of our listeners will take with them from this podcast. Yes. Um, and so the huge question that hangs over that is how is it that the most famous empress of Constantinople could have such filth? I think you can call it filth. I think you can. Sexist filth indeed, Tom. Written about her. Um, is it true? And what is the context for this extraordinary passage? Well, Tom, let us remember one thing. The woman we're talking about here is a saint. <laughs> it's literally a saint. Yes. So, th so that is a further, a further yeah, dimension. A to further the whole. complication. So Theodora um, and her husband Justinian are probably the two most famous, most celebrated individuals associated with what we now think of as the Byzantine Empire. Uh, although, Tom, that's not a label that they ever used of themselves. No, they're the Romans. They're Roman. they, they were the Romans. So this is the, um, the glamour the decadence, the so-called decadence, the exoticism to Western observers of the Eastern Roman Empire, of the successor, what well, is it a successor state? We can talk about that in the podcast. Of this empire that from, let's say, what would you say, Tom, the 4th century to the 15th century um, dominates the Eastern Mediterranean. It's the world of icons, of mosaics, of magnificent churches, of Constantinople, the greatest city on earth, um, the empire that is seen some, by some historians today as the sort of the shield of Europe against Islam, 
Um, but it's actually not as well known, I think, in the West as it should be. Would you agree with that, Tom? Well, this is this is a topic both of us have really wanted to do. So I've written a book about this in the shadow of the sword. Just get my plug yeah. in. And um, Good plug. you are wearing a T-shirt with the emblem of Byzantium on the front. I am, by coincidence, actually, eagle. I'm, I'm not wearing it deliberately for this, oh, for this I podcast. Thought... <laughs> because I've always been an aficionado of this because I studied it at university. And, um, and funnily enough, the reason I studied it at university was the first thing I did when I went to Oxford. And it was because it was so, it seemed to me, you know, I was 18 and it seemed so exotic and glamorous compared with the English Civil War, which I've been doing for A-level. And I think to most people, Byzantium still has that allure, doesn't it? It's the yeah. sort of golden it's, horn it's, it's, I mean, yes the very um the very language so um john the lydian um historian another historian byzantine historian described constantinople as the all golden city and it's that idea of gold isn't it and it's that um, idea i mean some some people will be familiar with this because we did a podcast about the vikings in the east and the idea of the vikings sailing down all these rivers and into the black sea and at the end they see this golden city that is basically the template for asgard this world of a harbor full of ships, massive mm. city walls, the churches, the dome of the Hagia Sophia, the Church of the Holy Wisdom, like nothing they had ever seen on earth. Caesar's golden city. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it just has an incredible resonance and romance. Um, so I think, um, I think that probably the best way to, to, to start on this story and we'll come, I think we should come to the question of how accurate that portrayal of the yeah. Taurus youth may have been. And also we should say that Procopius is, is equally as rude about Justinian. He is indeed. We shall become to Justinian's face later yeah. in the podcast. <laughs> so, so he's not just being sexist when he's rude. I mean, he's rude about everybody. Yeah. But I think to begin with, it would make sense, wouldn't it, to to look at Constantinople, the city that is the stage for both these extraordinary figures. Yes. Um, so, and uh, and you talked about how you know this is described as the capital of the Byzantine Empire, but you also then immediately said, well, yes, but it's the Roman Empire as well. So we should probably just kind of focus in on the degree to which what we call the Byzantine Empire is a break from the Roman Empire and not. And I would say it isn't really. Yeah, I agree with you completely because. The, the key thing about Constantinople is it is it is strategically it's incredibly defensible. So it's a kind of promontory sticking out from Thrace, sticking out from the, the kind of the easternmost section of, of Europe. That means that if you build walls around it, it's very easy to defend. But it's also it controls um, what already by the second century are the two kind of two key areas for the for, for Roman strategists, namely the Danube and the frontier with the, the Syrian frontier. So I'm writing about Hadrian at the moment. Um, and when he becomes emperor, he's facing war both on the Syrian frontier and on the Danube. And so he, the first winter that he spends as emperor, he spends probably in Byzantium, which is the, the, the original Greek name of the city. So even then you can see that, that you know, the fact that this is a, a position from which you can control these kind of two frontiers makes it absolutely key. And really the question is why, why it wasn't bigger. And I think one of the reasons why it wasn't bigger and more strategic before it kind of gets promoted to become the second Rome, the new Rome, is is the lack of water. Um, it's as basic as that. Yeah. But once you sort that out, so once you've got aqueducts, these tremendous aqueducts bringing water to the city, I mean, as you say, I think the position is, so you can go to the, the Bosphorus, obviously, most people will have heard of the Bosphorus, the waterway, the strait uh, that divides Europe from Asia. You've got the Sea of Marmara, and once you go down through that, you're into the Aegean. So the strategic location is perfect. And I think... If you think about the Roman Empire, so obviously Rome, the city of Rome, still has this tremendous sort of prestige, but 
all the action has been taking place on the frontiers for the Romans by the, what are we talking about, the fourth century, I suppose. Yeah. And they've been moving around, haven't they, the emperors? They've spent time in Milan. They've moved. They, you know, they need their military emperors who need to be close to the frontiers mm. to deal with the action on the frontiers, which is the kind of, uh, in inverted commas, barbarian incursions. And Constantinople makes sense, as you say, because actually we we often, because we're so Western orientated, we forget that for the Romans, the big rival was always the same, wasn't it? It was Persia. Yeah. And that frontier in Mesopotamia is, of all the frontiers, I suppose that's the high value one, the prestigious, because a victory against the Persians is more valuable yeah. in, in PR terms than because a victory against goths or something because back in hadrian's day he's facing the parthians who are a much a kind of shadowy threat compared to the persian the sasanian empire that emerges in the third century and which kind of endures throughout this period um and effectively it's a rival superpower which the romans hadn't previously had to face yeah. and so that i think is is really the key to why the city of byzantium in the early fourth century becomes the city of constantine Constantinople. Constantine has um, defeated all his rivals for uh, the rule of the empire. Um, he, he's the sole ruler. Uh, and just as he is the sole ruler on earth, so he has enshrined um, as the prevailing deity over the Roman Empire, uh, the Christian God who, who rules alone over the universe, the cosmos. Um, and he wants a new capital. And I think that that is what makes Constantinople different to, say, Milan or Trier or any of these other kind of places that have been temporary capitals, is that Constantine deliberately sets out to make it a second Rome, a new yeah. Rome. But it's but it, what's so interesting about Constantinople, though, isn't it, Thomas, that it's both, it is the duality. So it's both a new Rome, and that at first they have, I mean, they, they have lots of statues of, of Romans, don't they? They do it in that kind of classical style. But at the same time, it quickly becomes a sort of rival center of Christendom to, to Rome itself, doesn't it? And that's really yes. important because it gives it a different character from Rome, which I suppose to some people might seem tainted by the paganism of the past. To a degree. But I think that, that when Constantine founds Constantinople uh, and right the way up to um, the time of Justinian in the, um, the early 6th century, the patterns that Constantinople has inherited from Rome are really important. So you, obviously you have the figure of the emperor, and his palace, uh, and initially Constantine kind of, it, it's modeled on a praetorium. So a kind of military headquarters, but it rapidly becomes much, much larger than that. This kind of great sprawling edifice. Um, then you have a Senate and then you have the masses of the people. And just mm. as in Rome, the, the emperor meets the people in the Circus Maximus, which is the great chariot racing space. So in Constantinople, you have this space, the Hippodrome, where, chariots race and so that idea of a kind of tripartite division of the emperor the senate the people is something that constantinople inherits and i think that there's a kind of um people in constantinople feel the kind of anxiety of parvenus in the early years mm -hmm. which is why constantine basically i mean he's he does a lord elgin he just goes around you know the great cities of greece stripping them of all their treasures and dumping them in constantinople so there's this great bath complex there, uh, the Baths of Zippus, oh, which yes. are absolutely adorned with, you know, it's kind of like the British Museum. It's absolutely stuffed full of loot. So I think that that matters. And they and topographers kind of, you know, they rustle up seven hills in Constantinople. Just, I'm just it's, looking at a map seven, now with these seven yes. hills that by a remarkable coincidence, <laughs> yeah. same number as in Rome. Yeah. Um, and, and Rome had always been the city that grain is, comes from Egypt and, and, and North Africa and Constantinople has that kind of 
that yeah. grain as well. So you have all these kind of elements that are very, very deliberately modelled on on Rome. I mean, I'm just looking at a at a, at a map of um, Constantinople in the sixth century. Now you can download them from the internet. And um, to just pick up on what you were saying, I mean, the Hippodrome is right by the, the palace complex. It actually reminds me in some ways, Tom, of um, something we did talked about in a previous podcast, the Ptolemaic Alexandria, of a city that is both a city of great learning and um, sort of a city of, of scholarship and sort of seriousness and stuff. And yet there's always that mob. You know, there's that sort yeah. of, and the fact that the palace and the hippodrome are so close together. So to give people who don't know much about this, a sort of sense of it, this is Istanbul, it's modern Istanbul. It's the a part of Istanbul called Fatty. So it's on the European side. It's on the Southern side of the, of the harbor known as the golden horn. And I mean, Constantinople grows so quickly, doesn't it, Tom? So by the time we're talking about, it's probably got, what, half a million, half a million. people? Yeah, about half the big, a million. Probably the biggest city in the world, I think. I mean, yeah, maybe yep. Chinese historians might dispute that, but I think it's most people would say it's probably the big, single biggest city in the world. The, the measure of that is that Constantine has built walls, and they've rapidly kind of grown out of them. So um, in, the, um, in the 5th century, uh, an emperor called Theodosius II builds a, another vastly imposing sequence of walls that are further out. And so essentially the stretch of land between Constantine's walls and Theodosius's walls are where cisterns can be built, store water. Yeah. There are monasteries, there are kind of market gardens. Um, they're the walls that you see today, by the way, the Theodosius, yeah. they're still standing. I mean, they're and they are vast. And I think there's a case for saying that they are probably the best infrastructure investment of all time because they enable Constantinople to withstand any number of sieges. Um, and they're, they're built with the, you know, all the resources that Rome then had uh, and a hugely beneficial investment. Well, I think that's a really important point, Tom, because the, the portrait ever since Edward Gibbon wrote his decline and fall of the Roman empire, the, the image we've had of this, this world um, in English speaking countries has been one of a sort of sad decline from the virtues of the Roman heyday and a sort of decadence. So in other words, you'll have a sort of a book on the, the Roman Empire in which they'll cover 500 years in 400 pages and then another thousand years in 10 pages. Oh, this was a sad epilogue and it's all, <laughs> it's all very decadent and orgiastic. And of course the end was coming. You know, the writing was on the wall basically when they founded Constantinople, but obviously that's a ludicrous way of looking at it. I mean, this is a city that endures for the best part of a thousand years until it's taken by the fourth crusade. Is it the fourth crusade? It is the fourth yeah, crusade. Totally isn't four, it? Yeah. And then later on the Ottomans. I mean, this is a very, very rich, sophisticated. I mean, as we said, the biggest city on earth, incredibly multicultural, cosmopolitan. You would have heard in the marketplaces every imaginable language. I mean, obviously, it's a very Christian city, but there must have been visitors from every part of the known world. Um, you could buy anything you wanted. It's a city yeah. of pleasure. It's, a, it's got these kind of seething crowds in the Hippodrome. I mean, an incredibly intoxicating place. And I think also p part of the reason why, why Gibbon and why you know, the word Byzantine has become such a kind of pejorative is because um, there is a feeling that the less Roman it becomes, the more it goes into decline. Yeah, but I don't think. I mean, that that, that that's, that's. I don't think that's true at all. I mean, it, it the elements of the Roman remain, and I think they they are rapid. They are very radically recalibrated under Justinian in in paradoxical ways, and it, it in many ways Justinian's reign is is both an attempt to restore the Roman Empire and a complete recalibration of it. Yeah, and it does end up becoming. Um, 
a, a Greek empire, a Christian empire. The kind of the Roman and the pagan elements tend to, you know, f- fade away. But 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 the the kind of the richness of that means that it is an astonishingly sophisticated and fascinating yeah. civilization. And and Justinian and Theodora play key key roles. Just before we get on to Justin and Theodore, just one last thing about the geopolitics of it. Um, because obviously the Roman Empire has changed since it's what we th- commonly think of as its heyday. But the bits that have been, as it were, lost, I mean, they are the bits you, w- you would actually, if you had to lose <laughs> well, bits. Including Rome. <laughs> they are the bits you would, you would choose to lose because they're yeah. poorer. So you would choose to lose Britain. And if you had to, you would get rid of Gaul. Okay, fine. You'd, you, you'd prefer to keep Spain, but if you have to lose it, you do. Because the bits that are left are not some sort of decadent leftover. They are the richest, yeah. most productive. You know, they're the most interesting, most potent bits, aren't they? So it's, it's basically the half that Mark Antony had when y- yes, he and Octavian is. divided up the empires. Exactly that half. It is. And that reflects the fact that there are kind of ge- ge- geographical factors in the split between the West and the, Ro- the Eastern halves. And the, the, the Western half that gets conquered by the barbarians, as the Romans would call them, you know, they, they drift away because of the fact you have the Alps, you have the Adriatic, you know, these are kind of natural barriers and borders. But having said that, you know, if you had to give up anything, you give up the Western half. There are two obvious areas that people in Constantinople are particularly keen to get back. One is North Africa, which is yeah. incredibly rich as a, a supplier of grain. So that really matters. And the other, of course, is Italy, because Italy has the original Rome. Just to fill people in, Tom, to the Vandals in yep. North Africa. So that's about, when we say North Africa, we're talking about the coasts of Algeria, Libya, Tunisia. And then Italy has fallen to the Goths, hasn't it? Yeah, the Ostrogoths. And, and this matters not just because the loss of the original Rome is a humiliation, but also because um, in a Christian world, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, remains the senior bishop, even though the patriarch, the um, the Bishop of Constantinople, has been kind of promoted over the heads of the bishops of Antioch and Jerusalem and Alexandria. Yeah. Um, so, so the links with Rome are still very important. And this is something that that does kind of haunt people in Constantinople, the sense that they have, they've lost a kind of vital part of what it is to be Roman. So let's talk about the, should we talk about the characters, our, 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 our principles? So let's start with, since we've framed this through Theodora, I should say, Tom, uh, we've been very remiss, um, haven't we, in not pointing out to our listeners, um, some of whom I think are new because we've accumulated um, new listeners in, in recent days, that Theodora is actually the reigning champion of historical Love Island. She is, yes. Yes, she absolutely is. Uh, which was our much-fated show, uh, a much-fated <laughs> historical reality <laughs> show that we did, in which she triumphed along with former prime minister, three-time prime minister. In the 30s. In the 1990s and 30s, Stanley Baldwin. They made a lovely couple. Improbable. Uh, improbable but very <laughs> successful much liked by the by the fans yeah uh, and if you want to find out more about that you should go to our historical love island episode but dominic of course also uh theodora's husband um justinian of course was the theme of of our previous episode that we did with carl harper on the collapse of the roman empire and the impact that pathogens had on it and yes when in in that episode when we talked about the justinianic plague justinian is the justinian in the as in the, the justinianic plague exactly and he's a great character too, actually, Tom. He is a tremendously impressive character. Or is he, as we or is he? <laughs> discuss? Exactly. Yes. So let's start with, should we start with Theodora? So Theodora, 
she is born about we don't know exactly about 500 i think that's fair to say isn't yeah, it roughly that yeah um and we again we don't know well because she's from a lowly background we we're not entirely sure i think of her sort of um as it were her ethnic ancestry so some people said she was from cyprus some people said she was from syria but we do know that she grew up in in the city in constantinople because her father i believe was a bear keeper he was yeah so uh, and he's a bear keeper for one of the two main rival teams in the hippodrome yeah so this is what manchester city manchester united yeah but it's bigger than that uh, isn't it? it's much bigger than that liverpool everton the greens and the blues the greens and the blues and they hate each other the supporters hate each other but they're not just so people often I mean, it's one thing that people who don't know much about Constantinople know about Constantinople is they have these mad circus sort of chariot racing factions and teams, but they're more than sports teams, aren't they? They're kind of militias. They're almost, yeah, they're not, they, they're kind of clubs. They're, yeah, and they're they, kind take, of they take sides in yeah. kind of theological arguments, yeah. which I think is something that we very much miss from contemporary sport. Yeah, you don't get that with uh, fans of West Bromwich Albion, do you? <laughs> no. um, they are. Um, <laughs> Well, they're potential paramilitaries. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, if you've got huge gangs of ultras, I mean, that's a, they're the kind of standing temptation, aren't they? For Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, you kind that's, of get that slightly in Russia, don't you, today? You get it in Russia, you got it in Yugoslavia in the 1990s, um, fans of Dinamo Zagreb or Red Star Belgrade. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's not unknown at all. I mean, to a degree, perhaps just, you know, a little bit in Glasgow. Celtic Rangers. Yeah. yeah I mean, slight kind of, you know, there's because, because there you have a kind of sectarian divide. People yeah. taking positions. I mean, you know, they're not arguing about transubstantiation or anything, but you know, there's a slight kind of theological edge there. So that's maybe a kind of very faint, distorted parallel. So, so anyway, the, the Greens have their own bear. I mean, they obviously must put on shows <laughs> well, they both and have they, bears. Yes. I mean, both, they must have multiple animals, I assume. And, uh, Theodore's father, who I think is called Acacius. He has been the, he is a bear keeper, isn't he? And we don't know her mother's name. Her mother, probably a, again, a performer, an acrobat, a dancer. What do you think, Tom? I think if you kind of imagine uh, the Super Bowl crossed with a kind of very high class strip club, you probably have some idea of what's going on in the kind of the intervals between the races. Yeah. Because after each race, invariably people will crash, you know, bits of, body will have to be removed from the sand will have to be swept up everything will have to be prepared for that and often you're having kind of 20 or so races in a day so they need entertainment because you've got what kind of fifty thousand people because mm. this is a vast hippodrome the original one that was built back in the early third century wasn't large enough um so it kind of sticks off the hill on which it's been built and is held up on kind of great concrete props so it's a, it's an extraordinary structure, and it has this this great kind of spine running down the middle that's decorated with an obelisk and statues, and and actually um, the, the the famous trophy that the Greeks set up in Delphi in after the defeat of the Persians back in the fifth century BC, and which is still there. Um, so an extraordinary place, and this is what um, Theodora, her two sisters. Her mother, her father, they are making their living from this. So they're kind of born yeah. into the entertainments that are laid on in between the races. Well, she appears as a child, doesn't she? She appears she in does. burlesques and comedies. Yeah. And so, it, it, you know, she's, it's like being born into a circus family, but sort of turned up to a thousand. Um, but her father dies, doesn't he, when she's quite young? Yeah. And her mother marries again, I think. So they're with the Greens. 
Yeah, and she goes to see her mother goes to see the Greens and says, "I've married again." And she takes her children with her. I think her, among Theodore among them. She goes to see the Greens and she said, "The bosses of the Greens." She says, um, "I've married again." That bearkeeper job. Can my new husband have the bearkeeper job? And the Greens say, "No, you know, we've given it to someone else." And yeah. she is so outraged that the whole family switch allegiances. Well, she does it in public. So she brings the children, trying to tug the heartstrings of the crowd, before where the um, you know the leaders of the Greens are, and they turn her down publicly. And so the, the leaders of the Blues then say, "Oh, we'll we'll give you the job." Yeah. <laughs> so so they switch, and um, this is quite important for the story because Justinian, before he becomes emperor, is a big partisan of the Blues. So he is. Yes, that means that from this point on, Theodora and Justinian are, are supporting the same team. And um, so Theodora has to make her way in the world. Um, her mother, you know, they've got this link with the blues now, but she has to make her own way as a kind of performer. And I guess at this point, you'd have to say that 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 job of being a dancer, um, uh, an, an acrobat, a comedian, that in in the world of Constantinople in the early sixth century, that blurs quite imperceptibly into the world, as you said, of being a stripper or indeed of being a courtesan, because that effectively, I guess, is what she probably was when she was in her late teens, maybe. So this this is uh, something that Constantinople, again, has inherited from Rome, who viewed actors as the lowest of the low, so uh, ranked alongside prostitutes. Um, And as you say, the kind of the boundary between prostitute and actress was often very narrow. And so... Constantinople has inherited that prejudice, but it's now also a Christian city in which acting, burlesques and prostitution are all condemned for Christian reasons. Right. So there's, there's, uh, the, the, there's lots of reasons why Theodora might get you know, public condemnations um, mm-hmm. and why in due course uh, she betters herself by essentially turning her back on the, on the theatre and on the, um, on the Hippodrome because she gets a patron, doesn't she? Yeah, oh, the civil servant guy. Who goes off to govern Libya. Yeah, Hecabalus. And he's a bit of a brute, so he beats her. Yeah. And so she runs away, leaves him, and goes to Alexandria, where she seems to have had a kind of religious experience. So so everybody's Christian, and they take it incredibly seriously. I mean... Well, not everyone is Christian. Well, who's not Christian? Well, we'll come to this, but say there are Platonists in Athens, say, still okay. at this point. Not many people. But they, but they are still very much a part of the fabric of it. But Christian, the details of Christian doctrine are a matter of enormous political and cultural significance and, and arguments about those details. When she ends up, she's been in Constantinople, she goes to Alexandria, she is going to a part of the empire that many people in the capital regard as heretical don't they? Because the people in Alexandria, it's, Alexandria is a hotbed of something called monophysitism. Should we at this point... <laughs> Take a break. Before everyone runs for terror, should we have a break? And then when we come back, I think we should um, roll up our sleeves and just, it, we won't go into it in huge detail, but we just need to explain what the, what the point of issue is. And, it's actually and, and very exciting, Tom. It is exciting. I think actually, far, I think people will, it's a cliffhanger. <laughs> more, more. I know, but I've just, I, I've become so kind of, you know, um, sensitive to you complaining when we talk about Christianity that. Do you know, I should tell the listeners this, this is the only time in recorded history where when we were discussing this episode, I said to Tom, come on, get stuck into it, do it properly. And he was, uh, he was a little, he's a little bit nervous. So I'm come back nervous, after the break. I- <laughs> to see Tom talking about the nature of Christ. <laughs> see you in a minute. Bye-bye. 
Welcome back to The Rest is History. Now, you may remember that the first half of this episode began with an extraordinary reading from Tom Holland um, about the special brand of gymnastics performed <laughs> by the Empress Theodora yeah. when she was a, a girl. Now, Tom will be producing his own special brand of gymnastics as he is going to explain the nature of the monophysite heresy, a very okay. exciting subject. It's actually a bloodstained subject, so it's much more interesting than skeptics might think. So, Tom, what on earth is going on? So probably one of the things that people know about Byzantium, uh, and it's been a kind of subject of mockery again ever since the time of Edward Gibbon, is that the the empire and the, and the church is endlessly debating the nature of Christ. So this happens right from the beginning. So under Constantine, um, there are debates about whether whether the son Jesus, you know, whether Christ is um, a part of God, whether the son is is kind of co-eternal with the father, all this kind of stuff. And that gets resolved. And they decide basically that, yes, uh, that the, the father, son and, and, and spirit are all kind of part of a whole. <laughs> um, this is very but, precise. Uh. <laughs> but by the by the fifth century, there's a new controversy. And that is basically, uh, the, so theologians have decided that Christ, the figure of Jesus, is both human and divine. So yep. he has two natures. He has his divine nature and he has his human nature. And the question then is, what is the relationship of these two natures? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So basically, you can boil it down to thinking of it like this. So is it like gin and tonic? So you have your gin, let's say that's the divine. And yep. you have your tonic, that's the human, and you mix them up in a glass and they become indivisible. Yeah. Or are they like olive oil and water? Don't mix. And they, they don't mix. No. And so this becomes the kind of the great, great dividing line. I mean, we could sort of get bogged down in all this, couldn't we, in the in the details of it. But I suppose the essence of it is that am I right in thinking there was a there was um ecumenical council. That's a big a big meeting yeah. of church bigwigs in 451 bishops. in Chalcedon, which is now, again, part of Istanbul, but on the Asian side. Yeah. And they basically hammered out what they thought was the formula, and then some people didn't like it. Yeah, so so the the formulation that they arrive at Chalcedon, which is is still upheld by pretty much, every, so the Orthodox, the Catholics, Protestants, I mean, they all uphold it, is that, that um, you have one and the same son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. So in other words, the oil and the water, they're both equally important. They haven't yeah. mixed to create what in Greek is monophysis, a single, a soul nature. I told you it would be Tom's special brand of gymnastics, and it is. <laughs> but after Chalcedon, there are yeah. still people who, who are very keen on the idea that this single nature is what Christ is all about. So they yeah. come to be called monophysites. So as far as I can tell from my own um, reading of this, this is not just a sort of doctrinal theological issue. It's also an issue about about power and regions and so Everything on. Everything is. Yeah. So, yeah, of course. So yeah. the there's a, you've got, as it were, the, in inverted commas, orthodox view, which is the view held in Constantinople, and it's associated, I suppose, with the state, with the emperor, um, and with a sort of central authority. Um, and then you have this heresy, as it's called, which is monophysitism. And that's stronger in places like um, Alexandria and bits of Syria and so on. So in other words, in Egypt, North Africa, in places that maybe would resist 
very strong central control and being bossed around by the capital. Yeah. So it's a capital versus provincial thing to some extent, isn't it? Well, I mean, you know, you mentioned Alexandria, which is the second city. So it, it, of, of the empire, it always has been ever since um, the defeat of Cleopatra. Uh, it's like Constantinople, a very turbulent city, very proud of its dignity and status. And in a way, the kind of the tensions between Chalcedonian and Monophysite Christians become a way for yeah. Alexandria to kind of proclaim its its um, its distinctiveness. Yeah. And so when Theodora turns up there, she comes under the wing of the patriarch Timothy, and she 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 becomes a very devout Monophysite. Rather, I, I suppose rather in the manner, and and I think that this is kind of an important part of of her appeal to Christians in the long run. Uh, rather like the way that uh, Mary Magdalene is coming to be portrayed as a kind of repentant prostitute. Yeah. Even if there is nothing in the Gospels themselves that, that sustains that, the idea that someone who has turned to Christ, whose background perhaps is not all it could have been, in a way is a kind of greater catch. Yeah, of course. But that's part of the, I mean, that's part of Theodora's enduring appeal. I mean, in a way, you could argue, Tom, that's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast at all, is because yes. that that archetype of the sort of... The repentant whore. Yeah, yeah. The, the woman who was once terribly licentious, but has now repented and become incredibly good and incredibly impressive. I mean, that runs through you know, yeah. Western culture, doesn't it? Yeah. So, so she must have returned, we don't know exactly when, I think, to Constantinople yeah. at the end of her teens or in her very early 20s. Yeah. And there, at some point that we don't know, again... She, she, she's obviously still a great catch. I mean, she's still, you know, young. Yeah. And she meets an older man who uh, is, is a real rising star whose name is, well, his original name is Flavius Petrus Sabatius, but now he calls himself Justinian. Um, because he's been adopted by a guy called Justin, who just happens to be the emperor. <laughs> just happens to be the emperor, exactly. So the empire, when Theodora was born, the emperor was a man called Anastasius. Yes. Um, who had two, who, who had interesting distinction. His eyes were different colours. Yes. <laughs> one was black and one was blue, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, uh, a black eye. And he was also very bald. Very bald. I mean, can he be very bald? I think he, well, very bald because um, he gets praised by, by poets who are looking to flatter him. Right. Um, About his baldness. Yes, because um, they, they hail him. Uh, they, they say of his forehead that it gleams like silver. So he's a bolder man than Stanley Tucci, who's very bald. But he's even bolder. But I think his forehead has this kind of this this, this, uh, this tremendous this, glow. This glow, and he is a, basically a kind of he's a, he's a bureaucrat. He's a civil servant who's yeah. been who's kind of stepped up because there's, there's a gap, uh, there's a vacancy, um, and the fact that um, he can be praised for having a gleaming forehead it's it's not a reflection not just on his boldness, but also the fact that he's an absolute whiz at accountancy. And the treasury has been a bit depleted. Anastasius, his great contribution, rather than going out and kind of leading campaigns, he stays in the palace. He crunches numbers. He counts beans. And he sets the, the Roman currency, the Byzantine currency, on a tremendously strong new footing. So the so, solidus, as it's called, it, it is solid. <laughs> it's a massively strong currency made of gold. And basically, this will be the kind of the underpinning for Byzantine financial strength for centuries and centuries to come. An immensely bald emperor with a very, <laughs> yes. very solid solidus is what you're, <laughs> is what you're yes. saying. But anyway, yes. that, that it, actually, that I think it's good to talk about Anastasius because that gives the lie to any lingering ideas that this is a sort of decadent, shambolic, uh, incompetent uh, excessively corrupt, all of these kinds of 
sort of no. things they've been throwing at the Eastern Roman Empire. This is a confident, relatively stable state, isn't it? Dominating the Eastern Mediterranean. It's based, so basically, it's run by militarized accountants. Yes. Of whom Anastasius is the absolute exemplar. So, kind of civil servants who are working in the Great Palace are kind of recruited into a non-existent legion. And they they have swagger sticks, they wear gold, they wear kind of purple, they wear tremendous belts, which, you know, these military belts that descend from the, the legionary tradition that become the emblem of the bureaucrat. And the hot, you know, the, the palace, which had been built by... Um, by Constantine, quite a kind of austere basis. By this point, it's a kind of cross between Gormenghast and the office. It's it's a huge kind of great warren of passageways, many different floors. Or you know, they even have a riding school in the middle of it. I mean, this is basically um, like ten but, Downing Street, Tom. I mean, yeah, I'm, but on a, a much much larger scale. Yeah, but you still have this kind of it's it's this kind of weird fusion of of you know the legionary inheritance, but they're all accountants. So so. Anastasius is absolutely the exemplar of that. But of course, Anastasius needs to have guards. You need to have bodyguards because as an, as the emperor, of, yeah. of course you do. So they are also a feature of it. And bodyguards usually are recruited from, you know, the, 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 the more barbarous reaches of the empire, the Balkans traditionally. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this guy arrives uh, as a refugee from a barbarian invasion from, uh, from, from what is now Skopje. So yeah. Scoopy, it's called. And this is Justin. I think his original name was Istok. Yes, he's a peasant stock, isn't he? Possibly Absolutely, sort yes. of Thracian ethnicity, we don't know. Uh, he was not, he's not, interestingly, um, Justin is not um, literate. So he has a stencil when he becomes, when <laughs> yeah. he, with, he has to do everything with a special sort of stencil. Anyway, we're, we're jumping ahead. He's the commander of the guard, isn't he? Yeah. And, um, and basically, Anastasius has been emperor, what, from... The end of the sort of the end of the um, fifth century, and then he dies in five eighteen in the summer of five eighteen. He's got no heir, and he doesn't have a son. Well, he does. I mean, potentially he has three nephews. Well, there's a very shambolic scene, isn't there, with his nephews? Um, you know about the stuff with the couches. <laughs> Remind me. So um, supposedly, I mean, this is a, one of these stories in the rest is history in which we specialise. That's almost certainly untrue. Um, he decided that God would decide who would succeed him. So he wrote a note with the word regnum and he put it under the cushions of one of the couches and he decided that um, which of the nephews sat on this couch would succeed him because God would have chosen him. And they all came in, but they were great pals, all the nephews. They all sat on the same couch. <laughs> oh, so they didn't. So, 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 it. so it didn't work. Now, the other story is that he then said, oh, that was a terrible disaster. I shall pray to God. And he, he prays overnight and God gives him this vision and says, the man who comes into your bedchamber first tomorrow will be your heir. I mean, that's obviously a terrible way of deciding. And the man who comes in as the commander of the guard, who is this Balkan peasant. Justin. Uh, called Justin. But there's another story, isn't it, that Justin basically bribes his way. Well, so when, when Anastasius dies, one of these three nephews, who's a very able man called Hypatius, is in command of um, the Roman forces on the eastern frontier against Persia. So that's a key military command you know he's linked to the emperor and he has he has command of the armies but he doesn't want it basically so he's happy to stand down he's not he's clearly not an ambitious man Hmm. so you have this kind of squabble in the in the palace over who's going to do it and one of the rival candidates um gives justin who is commander of the guard a whole load of gold and says go out and bribe 
everyone to support me. So Justin goes out, he's got all this gold and he thinks, well, I might as well bribe them to support me. And that's what yeah. he does. It's um, very house of cards, isn't it? Yeah. It's very house of cards. So he becomes emperor and he has this, he can't read and write, but he has this stencil with the word leggy on it in purple ink. He's the only person allowed to use purple ink. So he can sort of stencil his approval on all these documents. But by this stage, Justin, or I mean, his name is Flavius Justinus. He is in his mid-60s, is he? I think 70 even. I mean, he's pretty old. So the real power behind him is his nephew, who he, he has definitely brought, is literate. Yes, who's almost certainly had an education in Constantinople, has come to sort of, you know, to, to profit from his uncle's success in the guard. And this is the person who, who calls himself very clearly just, very clever and quite serious, Tom. He's, he's, he's a very, very devout Christian. Yeah. He's also very, very patriotic. He wants to see the Roman Empire restored. He has all kinds of plans. He's impatient with Justin, who by this point, if Procopius is to be trusted, is um, is slightly losing it. He's Joe Biden, basically. He's slightly Joe biden Well, no, I think I think even maybe even worse. Um, but Justinian ha- has big, big plans. But he obviously needs to. You know, there's nothing guaranteeing the fact that he will succeed. So, you know, he's he's a, he's a bit like a, a kind of you know a prime minister or a president in waiting, uh, like a vice president or chancellor of the exchequer or something. Yeah. Um, you know, he's running a, a campaign to make sure that he does it. And as part of that, you know, we mentioned before, he's a, he's a keen devotee of the blues in the Hippodrome. Yeah. And the the blues are there's a kind of a, a particular paramilitary wing who all wear mullets. So yeah, so right about that. They, they sound they they're Morris and strange shirts that are very yes. big, but are kind yes. of they narrow at the end of their arms and yes. their wrists. Weird. Yeah. So so they look that they're they're kind of like Hethelites, kind of Hunnic people who are busy yeah. attacking the Persians at this point. So they're obviously very menacing, and uh, Justinian employs them as a kind of pa- paramilitary unit to essentially, you know, establish himself as the master of Constantinople while Justin is in the palace. Um, and he is, he's, he's preparing for, for the rule of the empire. Uh, and this is when he meets Theodora. But yeah. there's a problem. He, he falls madly, madly in love with her. Um, and even Procopius, I mean, you know, there's not a, a breath in Procopius's um, assassination, literary assassination of Justinian Theodora that they were ever anything other than utterly devoted to each other. But there's a problem because she comes from the kind of background that is, legally unacceptable it's not just it's not just in for a dig it's positively illegal, illegal. Isn't it? for somebody yeah. of senatorial rank which justin is because justin uh, sorry which justinian is justinian was also made consul i think in 521 so he's he's had every office bar the imperial title that you could have and he just is not allowed to marry her and there's a further complication which is that even though justin is happy to kind of wangle the law and basically kind of fix it so that if if you're a a, a repentant actress <laughs> which i think is a wonderful concept <laughs> right. uh, a repentant actress or prostitute then you can uh, then the marriage is fine there's a further complication because justin's wife if again if procopius is to be trusted was herself a slave it had had originally been a slave a concubine um so she was known as uh, her name originally was lupicina and Lupa in Latin is it means a, a she-wolf, but it also meant a prostitute. So whether this is just Procopius being muckraking or whether whether that's true, we don't know. But clearly she came from 
again, quite an infradig background. She has taken on, I think, the very telling name of Euphemia, which means well-spoken. Mm-hmm. So maybe the <laughs> very Pygmalion there, Tom. Yeah, expressive of a certain kind of social anxiety. So, so basically, the last thing that Euphemia wants is to have this kind of showgirl as a yeah as a daughter-in-law, because that will then direct attention to her own kind of awkward background. So, so she dies, fortunately, just in the nick of time. So Justinian and Theodore are able to get married, um, and then Justin dies, and Justinian is able to become emperor. And Theodora is given a remarkable degree of dignity. I mean, so Augusta, female of Augustus, this is the title of the empress. But Theodora is joined with Justinian in all kinds of salutations and formulae across the emperor. And, and it, it, he makes it absolutely clear that Theodora is going to rule alongside him. So this is the year 527, the spring of 527, I think the 1st of April, uh, Justinian is in his mid forties, forty-five or so. Uh, Theodora is still in her late twenties, about twenties, probably about twenty-seven or so, and they are, they now have the reins of power in what is still the Mediterranean's most glittering, most potent, most glamorous and prestigious state, don't they? And uh, Justinian has all these ideas. About how he's going, to, he's going to rebuild the glory of Rome. He's going to change. He's going to transform the map of Europe. And well, Tom, we've been talking for almost fifty minutes, um, and I think the, what happens next, which is tremendously exciting, which involves yes. riots, uh, <laughs> disembodied heads, um, Persians, plague, every horseman of the apocalypse imaginable, um, cathedrals. Yeah, building cathedrals is tremendously exciting stuff. And I think we should um, reconvene next time to find out what happens next. Let's do that. So let's do that. We shall see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.